this evening uh, to help us in our practice in going home. I'd like to speak about the happiness of renunciation through the practice of uh, the paramis. We've been so immersed in this protective culture and community of the Dharma in retreat here together, and we're protected by our mutual respect for one another, our respect for keeping each other in a feeling of being in a safe place, which helps us to open more easily with the feeling of um, a deeper kind of security. We're having respect for our agreements of non-harming here, taking the precepts every morning, reminding ourselves of our vow, of our intention. We're protected by the silence and simplicity, the shared seclusion that we all have together, and majorly by the practice of awareness, accompanied by a gentle heart, loving kindness, and the practices that accompany that, that we're learning to uh, develop, like equanimity, generosity, etc. These together are, are all leading to the deepening of understanding. You can see in yourself and probably hear from others uh, speaking about their practice that the recipe, the combination of all of this together produces a deeper understanding of life. Just comes together for each of us in different ways and things evolve or unfold and we see life more clearly. So we are beginning to understand or deepening in our understanding of what we say or call the true nature of who we are. And sometimes we realize it by the true nature of who we are not. We see we're, um, as sometimes I'd go to Manindra and I'd say things like, what I thought was before isn't anymore, or uh, this is what's happening, just this, just this, just this. And he would say, yeah, it's good to say, in, in his way of speaking, he would say, not this, not this, not this. Whatever arises is not you, not you, not you. Just part of the conditions and the causes and the effects of um, what previous causes are bringing up. So we feel a lot of protection here from ignorance and delusion because we can see more clearly how things are. Tomorrow we're going into the greater community of the world and we'll need to bring that protection with us so that we really know what it is, understand it for ourselves. It really isn't just a matter of awareness like uh, Sayadaw Utejaniya says, it's, it's about wisdom. And also, it's about compassion, love, a lot of other beautiful forces, equanimity. So we need to stay in touch with those forces, with those inner resources that we have found in ourselves. We may be um, sort of looking at the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds, and that's what is 
kind of shouts out at us. But remember that in order to see that, to open to that, we have to have these very strong, powerful, beautiful, wholesome forces of mind enable to do that, to enable us to do that. So um, keep that understanding with you as you get immersed in the greater stream of the world that we're going into. The Buddha would say that in this practice we're flowing against the stream, against the mainstream of society that is kind of going forever and ever towards unknowingly towards greed, hatred, and delusion. And we're going upstream to see what are the causes of that, how can we avoid those, how can we let them go when we find them in our lives. So we we need to remember often um, to take care of the Dhamma in our hearts. There's an old saying that if you take care of the Dhamma, it will take care of you. So the Dhamma is really just being having that awareness alive with us when we go out into the world. We can't just let it come upon us and, and think that, okay, we did our retreat and now let's just go out and let it happen. We still have to put effort energy, a lot of these beautiful qualities of mind that I'm going to speak about into our practice, the paramis. So it's not easy to do that because to go in the world and and remember the beautiful qualities of mind, especially this one, uh, renunciation, because in our culture and the mainstream, it has a lot to do, there's a lot to do with the pursuit of happiness and which usually in our society involves getting, attaining, material goods, social status, prestige, um, wonderful things too, you know, beneficial things for ourselves, our families. But we have to remember that that's not we, what we hear about all the time. I mean, just, I was taking notice when I was at the airport in Maui, there was a Starbucks sign that some, some said something like this, something new to crave. And then it had a picture of the new, whatever it is, a blonde coffee or something like that, you know, lighter coffee, something new to crave, as if it were virtuous to crave, you know? <laughs> So even craving is being kind of advertised as, hey, this is a good thing to do. Um, So we live in a society that's a consumer society. And so everything about getting and gaining and holding on to craving, clinging, um, that's what's talked about as if, you know, these were virtuous things. So when we're unconsciously influenced by all of that, we can see in ourselves it produces constant inner agitation. That's why there's a a lot of agitation, anxiety in the world, and then when we don't get what consumer society says we should get, then there's 
depression. We're not living up to certain standards. I mean, that's a very simplistic way of saying it's much more complex than that. But there's all this, these ups and downs because we're not so connected to that inner force of, um, of balance, of the Dhamma inside of us. And we really need to stay connected with that when we leave here. So this uh, unconscious being influenced by the society we live in, of course there's a lot good about it, but we really have to pay attention to this part that really gets us to be agitated all the time. Uh, this kind of existential inner turmoil that we have in the present moment. <coughs> It plants seeds for habit patterns to play out over and over again when they're unrecognized. So the Buddha's teaching began because of his great compassion in seeing this is what humankind is about. This pursuit of happiness means the endless obsessive obtaining, attaining whatever is not really good for us because we're not using wise discernment. So it's really the pursuit of suffering unknowingly. So our practice here is investigating that. It's finding out for ourselves, not believing it because you hear it, somebody else told you, you read about it, the Buddha said so. It's not, doesn't uh, hold water because of that but we see for ourselves how it happens in our own lives. And that's what makes a difference. That's the turning of the wheel and the, of the Dharma in our own hearts. So our practice here is to investigate the truth of that, the truth of suffering. Find out what the causes are to relinquish the causes of suffering. Find out what leads to freedom and nourish that. So for most of us involved in the Dhamma, especially given these protected in environments that we're in, we understand experientially that happiness comes from letting go. Basic renunciation in the Dhamma of greed, hatred, and delusion. And a lot of times we come to practice like this with our minds full of thoughts and ideas and wantings that just go on in an unleashed way. And um, after we learn to practice and we're in a retreat for a certain period of time, we feel less overwhelmed by that. And it's no wonder that we oftentimes leave in a way that feels we're calmer, clearer, cleaner in a way. We're not seeing the holding on as much we're not experiencing that as much. It's a really powerful experience to get to that place, and sometimes it can take a while. Depends on how much we've brought in to the retreat. So it's said that in a strong moment of awareness, a really strong moment when awareness is accompanied by, uh, for example, a strong compassion, strong equanimity, uh, other wholesome states of mind, 
when awareness is accompanied by those wholesome straight states of mind, it says that awareness becomes really, really powerful. And when it faces any moment of holding on, of greed, of pushing away, of hatred, or not seeing clearly, of delusion, uh, in that moment it experiences that uh, present moment very, very cleanly and clearly. And it sees that moment as impermanent or impersonal, or it really sees a deep understanding of the unsatisfactory nature of not just that moment, but many moments. And when that's seen, that's when wisdom is there. So when we talk about wisdom in the Dharma, we're talking about impermanence, the um, anicca characteristic, or the not-self characteristic of anatta, opposite of atta, self. And uh, we see the characteristic of dukkha. When we use dukkha in, in the Dhamma, it's often uh, uh, associated with, oh, that's bad. <laughs> but actually realizing dukkha is good. It's wisdom. It's understanding that. So when greed, hatred, and delusion are absent because of a strong moment of mindful awareness, which takes the accompaniment of wisdom, compassion, equanimity, concentration, calm, all those beautiful qualities of mind, Upandita would call it a mini-enlightenment because we, we open to, we actually experience and notice those moments of clarity they are very wholesome states of mind. There's an interruption in the stream of unwholesomeness of a, of a moment of purity. And that uh, plants seeds in the, our karmic stream to arise again. So these moments are really, really important to us in, in our practice as yogis. You might have seen in your own practice even moments of feeling lightness, or um, you know I've heard your your uh, and read some of your notes of feeling that openness, kind of a surprising open spaciousness, kind of soft yet clear acceptance of things as they are, that inner honesty that can see that moment and not uh, flinch from it. These are all moments of clarity when we get uh, confidence and faith in our ability to stay with what the Dhamma is presenting to us. The heart and mind stay ardent, clear, ready to carry on, ready to open to the next moment, seeing the truth of how it is, whether it's painful or pleasurable. So renunciation is a very strong quality to bring into the world because it's not about renouncing like what, sur what helps us survive in the world, like our families or things that we need, transportation like our bicycle or car. <laughs> it's renouncing at the very core, renouncing greed, hatred, delusion, and all the various manifestations of that on its um, spectrums of greed, hatred, and delusion.
So this is um, from Dilgo Kinsei Rinpoche. If I were, um, if I had gone into the Tibetan tradition, he would have probably, I would have sought him out for a teacher, a very powerful teacher in that tradition. He said, renunciation implies a strong wish to free oneself, not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending sufferings of samsara, the vicious cycle of conditioned existence. With it comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. That really says it all. Um, I'm remembering, I remember often on that, um, what is that called in the um, Paticca Samuppada, the 12 links of dependent origination, on that uh, beautiful painting, uh, Tibetan painting of dependent origination, the Buddha is outside of the cycle of samsara. He's outside of it. And he's pointing with his left hand and he's saying, um, give up this and take up that. You know, beyond this cycle of samsara. Give up this and take up that. Because this cycle is run by greed, hatred, and delusion. And when we develop the opposites of that, which are what these... um, but renunciation and all of the paramis are the opposites of what keep us on the cycle. We go beyond that cycle into an area of clarity and peace and happiness that doesn't depend on getting and clinging and holding or hating especially, of course. So giving up the endless quest, the endless quest, so beyond this realm. There's a lot of great security in that renunciation and this, these endless forms of clinging fed by delusion and ignorance. In the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha talked about renunciation in this way. I have seen the misery of attachment to pleasure and by extension, it means aversion to what's unpleasant. I've seen the misery of attachment to pleasure, and I have seen security involved in renunciation. So this renunciation is not about giving up pleasant experience. Pleasant experience happens, and it can be pleasant, and in the moment it can be temporarily enjoyed. But the danger of pleasant experience is that we cling to it, we attach to it, we keep looking for it again and again without realizing that it can come up on its own when conditions are there and we can actually nourish the causes and conditions of that. But um, if we cling and attach to it, that's what causes suffering. So a little bit about Uh, kind of filling out renunciation, grounded in the practice of the paramis, those ten wholesome factors of mind that were also, at the same time uh, that we're practicing 
our awareness here, I'm bringing in some of these factors. So where is that paper that... Um, hmm. Okay, I'll come across it and read those factors to you in a moment. Just don't see it right now. So those paramis are the wholesome factors of mind that naturally lead to inner freedom. The first one, generosity. Let's see if I can remember them, and maybe you can remind me. There's generosity, which we talked about, and I'll fill out more. And then, and then there's a thanks. And then there's sila, which I talked about also, that has to do with the five non-harming attitudes of mind. There's effort or energy. There's equanimity. There's truthfulness, which is also part of sila. Um, there's wisdom. There's renunciation. There's resolve. There's patience. Um, say it again. Uh, not, not by itself. Loving kindness, right? Uh, I'll find the other one. It's in here. <laughs> Integrity has to do with everything. Yeah. So um, I, when I was in Burma uh, several times, I know a number of people who regularly take up to two or three months of practice there. They're Burmese people, but when they're not doing intensive practice, they take each year one of the paramis to really develop. And so this is what you might consider for yourselves, taking one of the paramis to develop. Um, and they find the places where they can arouse this parami when they're not present, or when they, when they see that parami present, then they actually can nourish it. For example, when they, when they see that uh, there's a, an intention to give already when they see somebody that needs some, uh, some help, then they actually feed that intention and nourish that uh, intention. And they, they actually give when, uh, and not just see that generosity is there, but they actually follow through with um, giving. I, I don't think he would mi mind me saying this, but one of my senior colleagues, Joseph, um, has taken up the last I heard from him, I see him and hear from him quite often in the year. He said that what he's taking up is whenever a sense of generosity opens up in him, he feeds it. He just goes ahead and gives when, when it comes up in him. And I, I think that's um, a wonderful thing. You know, I've actually tried to do that, but sometimes uh, it just can't happen. Like there's so many times in the day, I don't know if you feel like you feel like giving, and it goes so fast, you know, we have to write these things down. <laughs> and um, there's so many things. Or just like when you think of somebody, just write them a note and say, I'm thinking of you and, you know, hope you're having a nice day. Don't answer. It's okay not to answer. You don't want to have to say another thing. <laughs> so, I mean, there's too many things to answer sometimes. So, um, 
So as you go back into your everyday life, see if you can take up some of these paramis. They're called the perfections because um, what happened is during the time of the Buddha, uh, when the Buddha was becoming a Buddha, Bodhisattva, a Bodhisattva needs to perfect all of these beautiful qualities of mind in order to actually be a Buddha. And so it's said that a Bodhisattva goes through various lifetimes, and it even is um, stated in the text that they go through even world cycles of experience, not just lifetimes, but world cycles of experience to perfect these uh, perfections, these paramis, eons of lifetimes sometimes. Paramis means noble becoming, noble becoming. And um, I like that description of it because although I don't have the intention to become a Buddha, it's really kind of almost way beyond my reckoning, but I have an intention to be noble and so that, um, I like that noble becoming, because that seems quite attainable to me. It might take several lifetimes, but maybe not <laughs> eons for me. Oh, here it is. Okay, the ten paramis. And these are in the, in the order that it comes in the text, uh, the ancient text. Generosity, and then morality. Renunciation is a third one, which I'm filling out. Wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. Those are the ten. So zooming into renunciation, um, which is the one I wanted to zoom into because it's not so inviting in, in our culture. So what does that mean to us? You know, when we understand how greed, hatred, and delusion and all its manifestations leads to a lot of suffering, then we can have more appreciation for what renunciation means. So this is a cartoon strip I want to describe to you. Um, many of you know Hagar the Horrible, that cartoon strip. Well, once in a while it comes out with a gem. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you one of my gems after this one that I saw. <laughs> Sometimes there are pretty profound um, thoughts that come in these uh, cartoon strips. So in this one, there are four frames. Try to picture them for yourself. The first frame is Hagar climbing up a steep mountain. I mean, it's really steep in the drawing, huffing and puffing away. And then the second frame is he gets to the top and he meets a, a sage, a wise sage, with a long white beard, sitting cross-legged. And Hagar says to this person, O oh, great sage, please tell me the secret of happiness. The third frame, the sage is saying to him, simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. And the fourth frame, Hagar says, is there anyone else up there? <laughs> we don't like that. 
<laughs> you want something else. <laughs> hmm. So I'm getting off topic now, but the, the second one I saw that was really <laughs> cute is um, I really attuned to this. And besides, you know, this great sage was uh, a male. So there's another one about somebody climbing up the steep mountain looking for the great sage. This is Hagar. He's climbing up and he comes to the top. And they, they were all telling him, go up this mountain and you'll find the wise person, the great sage you've always been looking for. So he goes up and he gets to the top and then he says, Mom, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> I sent that one to my son. <laughs> Okay, so that's the woman, you know, the female version, that gender. So the Pali word for renunciation is nekama, and usually it means go forth. Literally, it means go forth. But when you read it in the text, like in the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification, it means to go forth from a dusty, prison-like place into a wide open place like nature, where you can really see things as they are. And so it's really not, <coughs> in, the, in the text, it's not described as a deprivation. It's more de described as something you gain because you're going out from a, a small place into a large open place where you can see nature. So this is the happiness of renunciation where you feel a very deep resting in life when this is happening. It's not about depriving oneself. It's about gaining and enjoying a sense of non-greed, all the factors of uh, letting go and generosity, uh, patience also, non-hatred, loving-kindness, non-delusion, wisdom, and various of the others you might put in those categories. So they're so interconnected you can't practice one without the support of the other. And I might not cover all of them in these, but I'll take a, a few of them and I'll put them in, into some sections so that we can get a taste of them and see, is that something I'd like to practice in my life, is taking up a grouping of some of these paramis that might be interrelated and see if we can practice them. So I talked about uh, this afternoon very shortly about this area of dana. And dana is um, really letting go. It, it's not letting go of something like we own or have or something that's precious to us um, that we really need for our survival. It's really letting go of greed where every time when we um, when we can give of ourselves, or give something of ourselves. It's a beautiful way of developing that letting go. And um, in, the, in the Dhammapada, this is in the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing sharing one's food, for example, or like Joseph was saying, you know, 
when that opportunity to give came up in him, he, he wanted to do it. He just, um, everything that he could be inspired by, he would uh, take action on. So I saw Manindra do this, and it was really um, touching what I saw. I mentioned this all the time in my talks about Donna. It brings um, a lot of softness of my heart to remember him. That when he was alone and he didn't, um, I wasn't there to share food with him, he would even uh, put a little food in, in a tiny, maybe a lid or, uh, you know, a lid that wasn't on a bottle or just kind of on the, in the, on the floor, you know, next to the uh, crack in the, next to the wall. He would give a little bit of his rice and whatever he was eating when I had to leave him at home alone. Um, and he'd leave it for the bugs. And he yeah, had for the insects. And um, it was, and he was really sincere at doing that. It wasn't like, you know, um, that he was like so compassionate for them or anything. He just wanted to share his food. If I, if beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they wouldn't let an opportunity go by. And if you were sitting beside him and he knew you and you felt comfortable being next to him, he would, you know, peel a banana. And he would often like shove it in my mouth. Would <laughs> say, and I'd see this coming and open my mouth. Okay, <laughs> you know, it's really sweet. It would be really, really sweet that he would do that. And um, and he would let other people give to him too because it would be good for us to give to him as well. When um, one time I took him to the drugstore and he was on his way home. You know the drugstore like a Walgreens or something that has everything in it? And, and, and Maui, it's Long's drugstore. And so I took him there. And um, I said, Manindraji, what can I get you that you need? And he said, oh, he said, um, Mom, he called me Mom, actually. <laughs> Mom, <laughs> it's not what I need, but the children in my neighborhood, they need umbrellas. And um, they're, it's raining, and they need to have umbrellas. And I said, how many umbrellas? <laughs> there are lots of children. And, he's, and he said, oh, just a few, just a few. But he would get like a lot, like 10 or 12 umbrellas, you know. Then when we would pack him up to go home, it would be like this huge bundle of things. Um, luckily we would be able to pay for it, so he would take it home. And honestly, he did give them away. Like, I, I went to visit him once where he lived at that time, and he lived in a busy part of town. And when, um, so I, I went to his room, and he, he is kind of like a pack rat, and he has a lot of things stored above the bed, little room under the bed, and they're all for people. You know, so one day we go out for a walk, and he's, I said, where are the umbrellas, you know? So he gets some umbrellas, and when he goes down the street, he gives them to the children who need umbrellas. It was just any moment that he could give. So that, that's been really inspiring. He had little, but he shared a lot. 
And um, the Buddha gave teachings, you know, gradually, like I mentioned before. And the first one would be, in the gradual teachings, the first one would be generosity, because that's the beginning point of letting go, just in, in, in that simple movement of the heart and of the mind. So we let go of attachment there, sharing our lives with others. It brings in the quality and the other paramis of metta, of loving kindness, because to give we need some kind of loving kindness. We need some kind of feeling of being connected with another person, and we kind of see their whole life in front of us or what they might need, part of their lives. It's said that you also need equanimity because to part with any of our own resources, we need equanimity, you know, to, and we're, we're not kind of holding on. So equanimity, loving kindness are part of this letting go process. And in, in, um, in dana, there's when we give, those are accompanying dana. So I like to always bring in the Buddha's words, so try to find them as much as I can. And this quote from the Buddha is about uh, loving kindness and the destruction of clinging, loving kindness and equanimity. For one who mindfully develops boundless, that means the part of equanimity when it's boundless, loving kindness, seeing the destruction of clinging, the fetters are worn away. So that that all has to do with seeing how clinging causes suffering and when we can destroy clinging by the boundless loving kindness of our hearts. So it's the kind of the opposite of holding on when we're giving. So letting go of attachment, bringing in the quality of metta, loving kindness, equanimity. Metta has long-term benefits because if you let go, you learn to let go a little, then you'll learn to let go a lot, then you'll learn to let go completely. And that completely can be at the time of enlightenment, when you let go of completely, of greed, hatred, and delusion, or at the time of one's death. You know, whatever is important to you at this time, whatever the Dhamma, however the Dhamma is important to you. For some people, it's that, so at the time of death, we can feel, we can easily let go. So the far-reaching benefit is a mind that can go into final liberation. So the second area of these um, qualities of the paramis is the area around sila. And I talked about that in the first Dharma talk. And this is letting go of harming. Letting go of harming through our speech and behavior. And what is gained is harmony, inner harmony and in connection with others, harmony all around us. So just uh, reviewing a bit, <clears throat> these beautiful inner qualities is what a, a virtuous conduct is the beauty, the inner beauty that we gain. 
as we grow older, it becomes more important to us to, to see that inner beauty. So now, when, when I listen to you, when I'm in front of you, and you are talking about your inner beauty, you are, even though you're talking about dukkha, you know, <laughs> and you're talking about you're doing your best to see what's going on, open up to wisdom, yes, it's really hard, and you're seeing these qualities, compassion, you understand balance, or some of these qualities of inner beauty are showing up in all of you. And I, it's like I don't see your face anymore, what you look like. It's more like who you are inside. And that's really shining to me, and that's really a light that I can look at that kind of shines my own path, on my own path. And then sometimes I look at my own, what's going on inside of me, and I say, boy, I have to clean that up a little bit. You know, the way I let things out of my mouth so easily. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I, I can't stop saying some four-letter words sometimes. <laughs> they come out easy. <laughs> Um, and um, sometimes Joseph thinks it's really, I can be so gracious, and all of a sudden something will come out of my mouth that like shocks him. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and sometimes they're not really harming. It's just like, uh, it's all around me sometimes. You know, you hear it so much that you think it's just like a natural word <laughs> that everybody says. So. Anyway, it has <laughs> not so good connotations sometimes. <laughs> so, as the Buddha said, virtue leads step by step to the highest. So, step by step, we're, we're trying our best. And when I make a prostration in front of, um, you know, some of my teachers who are wearing the robes of various um, traditions, I'm bowing to their renunciation, you know, because taking up the robes is like a really difficult thing to do, but it's really rewarding, too. There's a lot of benefits. Um, there's less inner agitation. There's, when we take up this renunciation through the precepts, that's what we're doing every morning. We're renouncing harm through the precepts. We're really paying more attention to that. Where there's, um, the result of that is less inner agitation. You can feel it. Less guilt, less regret. A mind that's happier. A mind that's more calm with things as they are. So connected to sila is truthfulness. It said that all the bodhisattvas could develop uh, the paramis. There are, uh, I think, including this Buddha, this uh, Gotama Buddha, there are 24 Buddhas that are known or remembered um, from all the world cycles. And each one of them had to develop through world cycles and many births uh, these paramis. And they could break every single precept in sila 
but never could break the precept of truthfulness. That's how important truthfulness is in, in kind of the development of a Buddha. Because if they broke that precept, they would break their intention or their vow to become a Buddha. That's how important truthfulness is. And I remember in the suttas, and this came to me when I connected this understanding with this reading, that the Buddha told his son Rahula, even as a joke, do not ever tell an untruth. Even to say, you know how sometimes we make a joke and say, oh, there's a cockroach on your, <laughs> you know, cockroaches are really big in Hawaii. There's a cockroach on your shoulder. I mean, not even that. That's not a joke, but that's something <laughs> we can get a big kick out of sometimes. Um, but not even that. Be careful that we're not even saying that. And I remember one of our dear friends we went to dinner with one time, and he was um, saying like one of those jokes that um, supposed to be funny. And so he started to say that, and we just got out of a retreat. And then in the middle of it, he said, oh, he slapped his, his mouth and he said, Musawada, which means I told a lie, or be careful not to tell a lie. And so it, that really struck me. And when I was um, practicing one time, Upandita made a really big deal out of telling the truth because he said, if you can't tell the truth, how can you experience the truth? if you can't stand on the truth in your speech. So it really, um, deception really, really bothers me when I see that in others or when I see that in myself. So this is, um, and then this is what I found in the, in the ancient text, in, which is called the splendor of enlightenment, the life of the Buddha, that in the previous world cycle, um, there was a different Buddha to be. And it said that a previous Buddha has to proclaim somebody that he meets in, or she meets in one's lifetime, the, um, another being that will become a Buddha. And so in this particular lifetime, in this previous world cycle, there was a hermit named Sumedha. And uh, this Sumedha had this um, intention to become a Buddha. And that intention could be in a, in a being, but unless it is proclaimed by the Buddha of that time, it's not fulfilled. It can't be fulfilled. So this Sumedha met up with that previous Buddha, and uh, that Buddha told him, in that lifetime that he would become a Buddha. When he did this perfection of truth, when he really completed this perfection of truth, so he said to him, O wise Sumedha, from now on do you fulfill the perfection as truth as well. And that means he was admonishing him to do it. Be careful about that one. Even though the thunderbolt a thunderbolt may descend upon your head. Do not utter a conscious lie for the sake of anything, being actu actuated by desire or other motives. 
even as the healing star Venus pursues its own course throughout all the seasons without running along a different orbit, even so you too, without forsaking the truth and uttering no falsehood would become, will become a Buddha. And that's what his confirmation was to that Sumedha who became Gotama Buddha of our time. It said, they say, so being careful uh, through our speech and our action is um, developing virtue. That develops faith in ourselves. <coughs> that develops loving kindness also. That develops equanimity also. And when we renounce being untruthful, that allows us the truth to reveal itself to us. And so we can open to it. So all of the, um, all of sila is included in that and also truthfulness. And the next group is about effort, energy, resolution. So some years ago, I started to face the fact that my life ahead is shorter than the years already behind. And this was a, one of those just um, thunderbolt waking up moments. I have a, a sign in one of my rooms that says, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Just like life is short. Pay attention, pay attention. So I always had this wholesome intention to take a period of renunciation and be a monastic. So that's what I did. I, uh, my life as a mother was pretty much completed. The children had grown up and were young adults. And I could leave my Dhamma responsibilities. And I wanted to live simply with few duties and have deeper renunciation. So I took um, some months ordaining temporarily as a nun. And I felt really completely protected by the Dhamma when I did that. Um, so with that kind of renunciation, I really felt that I was able to more deeply understand the roots of suffering and also bring a clearer awareness and renunciation to them on a deeper level. And truly, it, it was like a time of so much um, deep peace in my heart, mind, that it, it didn't take much for me to really feel the happiness of that time. And there was one time that was really pronounced to me, that was stood out from all the other times, even more than sitting, was that uh, usually after breakfast was a time when you would um, wash your robes and hang them out in the morning. And so I was, I was doing that. I just walked back. Breakfast was about 4.30 in the morning. So I was walking back after that, and the sun was just coming up. And, um, and it was just like only walking for those moments and seeing the sunrise and enjoying seeing and the delight that came with just seeing. And then there was, um, you know, filling up the pan of water and putting the soap in it and cleaning my robes, washing them, 
and then rinsing them. Then I went to hang them out um, on the porch that I had. And so I was just putting a pin in one, hanging them over the clothesline, a pin in the other, and seeing the sun come over. And I thought to myself and reflected, this is the happiest moment of my whole life. And it was so, it was that simple moment. It, it wasn't like sitting in deep retreat and it was just doing a very simple thing and just knowing that moment. And it was really clear and seeing that it wasn't wanting anything more, it wasn't needing, wasn't needing to have anything else. So just saw the, the beauty of renunciation during that time. Um, a happiness that was gained from letting go of complexity and just being with simplicity, you know, not having any hair to comb <laughs> and um, having maybe three sets of robes, just being really simple. But it did take a lot of resolve to get there. It took a lot of months in advance to prepare getting there took a lot of resolution um, to say, I'm going to do this, even though it was scary sometimes. And it uh, took a lot of resolution to say, okay, I'm going to put this, this, you know, these monetary resources aside when I could have spent it for something else. So resolution um, is part of the parami of renunciation, also effort, energy. It takes all of this to do the practice of renunciation. It all comes together somehow. I remember in my first long retreat in Australia, I, um, I had the energy of youth. And at that time, I just my hair was on fire with the Dharma. And uh, I was in this dormitory uh, with about 18 to 20 other women. The dormitory was about as big as this room, and those were the days when, you know, you didn't dare ask for a single room or even a double room. It's like you just took what you got. And so I, I was given a room where the Aussie uh, women thought they were giving me a good spot, but it was so cold. You know, and they gave me the spot near the window. And I was like, had all these woolen blankets on top of me. And I just, I just couldn't um, go to my bed and feel warm. And I thought, I'm just going to do my practice. I'm just going to stay up and do my practice. And I made that resolution. And it was easier to make that resolution because there was a heater in the sitting hall. <laughs> And I could sit there. So I sat next to the heater and I did my practice. And um, I made a resolution. I don't, I'm not uh, advising any of you to do this. I was pretty, I uh, wasn't that young when I was doing that. I was in my 30s, I think. And um, so I sat next to the heater like uh, all night. Well, that, that's what I wanted to do. So that's what I did. And then I, sometimes 
I'd fall asleep, <laughs> of course, and I would just kind of, there were, there were about two others there, maybe sometimes an, another person, and because Seirao Upandita would talk about energy and resolve all the time, so okay, and then I would fall over, <laughs> and then I would get up. So I wasn't always upright, I wasn't like this, you know. But Upandita would come in the room, he would be like in another adjacent building, and he knew I was doing that, so he would come to the door, and I'd be sitting, and I'd be sitting this way, and I could see him come in the door, and I'd, I'd hear it, and I'd open my eyes, and he'd just be there looking at me and the other people, and then just to make sure we're okay, and then he'd go back in the room. It was really so sweet. They think you think he's this taskmaster, but he just had this incredible, compassionate heart. So um, I did that for the retreat, and I tried to go back to my room once, but um, it was too cold, <laughs> and it wasn't easy. I remember going by the nuns because the nuns were. It was a was a nunnery, a monastery for retiring nuns. And it was um, nuns that I, in a tradition that I knew. In fact, the head nun was from the Philippines, and I knew her. And so um, sometimes they'd be saying the rosary, you know, in a room that I'd pass by, and I'd think, oh, that be so nice just to go back to say the rosary. <laughs> and I would pass that room and I just want to go in that room and say, forget being a Buddhist, I'm going back to be counting a Catholic. But um, no, I knew I got tempted, but I never did that. It took a lot of energy, it took a lot of effort to do that, it took a lot of resolution to do that, and I was young and I'm not going to do that again, I know that. <laughs> Um, now I have a different balance in my practice. It's a balance of resting more and having enough energy. So those qualities are, you know, are all there in renunciation. When we have the quality of generosity, we, we let go into non-clinging. We, we let go into really sharing our lives with others, and we have... Um, kind of very beautiful feelings about ourselves when we do that. When we practice non-harming, we have non-remorse. Um, we have gladness as its benefit and reward. There's joy and serenity, happiness. When we have, um, when we have wisdom, what we're letting go of is ignorance by bringing awareness to the moment. And uh, when we let go of laziness and not caring about our practice, we have energy, we let go into energy. When we have um, impatience and we let go of that, we let go into patience, which is a, a much more agile um, and flexible state of mind. When we let go of deception, which is untruthfulness, we gain truthfulness, and we get to see the truth as things really are. And resolution, when we let go of like being stubborn about what we need to do in our lives, we, we get that aditana, that resolution to do, see what we need to do and to do it. 
and we let go of hatred when we um, practice loving kindness and we let go of just kind of the reactivity we have and being in a small space in the mind when we have the spaciousness of equanimity. So we let go into a life, a better life. <laughs> we let go into a life where it's easier to practice. We let go into a life where we feel better about ourselves and we have more faith into ourselves about ourselves because we know we can do it. So um, this is all about letting go, this practice, because what we want to gain is really all the constituents of love and wisdom. And that's what it takes in our life to do it. This is a very practical poem that I love by Reverend Sapphire Rose. And it's about, it's the, the title of it is She Let Go. Anybody hear this, She Let Go? It's really just down-to-earth practical. So I, I can relate to this. And you, you know, change the pronouns, genders, whatever you wish, and um, I'm, I'll use the word she. She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons, wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry. She just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of all the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all the calculations on how to do it perfectly. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. <laughs> she didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. She made no public announcement about it. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she would let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't utter one word. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one noticed a thing like a leaf falling from a tree. She just let go. No effort, no struggle. It wasn't good, it wasn't bad. It was what it was. And it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. And a smile came over her face a light breeze blew through her hair, and the sun and moon shone. And the last word is forevermore, but since we know about <laughs> impermanence, I'm not saying that word. So, so let's sit and let go.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.